When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth. And I'm Sam Abu Al Samad. So it's been a little while, but we're back and we're going to talk about some why, cars. Why, is it, why does it we keep starting the show with that? Well, I mean, we're busy people. <laughs> um, I. Uh, we I do our to, best. Yeah, I had to go out to Seattle. You've been flying around. You're actually headed out to California after we do this. Um, yep. So, you know, we're. We're busy people. We're the titans of the automotive <laughs> right. journalism and, industry. And, and, and enough, enough with the excuses. Nah, anyway, let's, um, let's move on to what we're driving. So uh, <laughs> what have you been in lately? Okay, so I spent a week with the 2018 Mazda 6 Signature, uh, which is the top-end version of the refreshed Mazda 6, which is an excellent, excellent car. How's that and new turbo engine? It's I like it a lot. Um, You know, it's not quite as strong as some of the competitors. Uh, You know, most of the, you know, the two liter turbo is rapidly becoming the the standard premium engine option in, you know, midsize family sedans. And most of the time they're they run about the the 225 or 250 to 260 horsepower range uh in these vehicles so you know in cars like the the fusion and the uh, honda accord uh, touring you know the 2.0 turbos um you know they're generally in that 250 horsepower range this one is a little bit shy of that it's uh, about 227 in uh in 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 227 horsepower and about 250 foot pounds of torque well see the torque's not bad though that's that's healthy yeah yeah they're you know i the thing is you know the mazda 6 you know the mazda is is on the lighter end of the um the weight range for most of the cars in this class as well you know mazda's done a good job with uh with weight savings so you know, you really can't complain much about this thing. It, you know, it's really good. I, I actually had a chance uh, back in the spring uh, at the uh, the Mama Spring Rally at Road America. I actually had a chance to take a lap in the Mazda Six uh, Turbo, and uh, was really impressed with it. I mean, I've I've always been impressed with the Six. You know, all of the the modern generation of Mazdas have excellent driving dynamics, and this one is absolutely no exception. Um, you know, the really the only the only thing I can really complain about with this car is that you can't get the turbo engine with a manual transmission. Yeah, well, that's my um, my sort of like the biggest sticking point for me is they used to have the manual available on. I think you could get it all the way up to the the touring trim or grand touring or something like grand touring. Yeah, the mid then, the mid the mid level trim. Whatever. Right. Yeah, now the grand, you, can, you can only get it in the base trim. 
Right. Um, and that's with the two liter four cylinder uh, that is uh, about 184 horsepower. So, you know, if you want the more powerful engine, you're going to have to go with an automatic. And, you know, we're now, you know, we're at the point now where um, only, uh, I think, the Honda Accord is the last midsize sedan that has a manual transmission available with the more powerful engine. Uh, with the so there, you can get the two-liter turbo with the six-speed manual uh, in the sport. Uh, yeah, the Accord sport, sport. Tu- the sport 2.0 T uh, trim. So the, you can get the, the the Accord Sport with either the the base 1.5 liter turbo or the two-liter. But see, and like both of them are available with the manual. It, I don't know. Like for me, I don't even, I don't even care about the fancy engine. I just like the, like, all the, the equipment that the higher trim levels come from, you know, like I might like leather seats, you know, but if, yeah. if, if you can't get the, but you manual, can't get that on a, on the base model. Yeah. Right. And uh, I don't know, especially for a brand like Mazda where they've made their bones with uh motorsports heritage and, you know, zoom, zoom was their, their raison d'etre for, for quite a while. It's, it's since they've, I've, I think it's what driving matters now is their tagline. Like, so mm-hmm. come on, guys, put the stick in it. Well, but, you know, I, as much as I, I totally agree with you, you know, you also have to look, you know, it's a business, you know, and, you know, Mazda has only a fraction of the volume sales volume that, you know, Honda and Toyota uh, and, and even Ford uh, have, you know, in this in this segment. And there's just not enough demand for a premium trim manual transmission car to to justify the development costs, you know, or, you know, they, they have to try to keep the, the number of buildable combinations manageable. And so that means that you you end up having to sacrifice this stuff. And sorry, I, I misspoke when I said the torque. The torque is actually 310 foot pounds. So that's the, so this, that's the this thing's clearly five, biased though. towards torque. Yeah. Right. That's not a that's not a two liter. That's a two and a two point five liter. Right. Uh, no, it's a two liter. Uh, let's see, let me double check that. The, no, sorry. It is a two point five. Yes, it's a two point five. And um, the, the two twenty seven horsepower number I, I specified is if you're running on uh, regular gas, if you put premium fuel in it, oh. uh, you will get two hundred and fifty horsepower. Well, I mean, that's a little. I, so yeah up to i see it on their website now delivering up to 250 horsepower i mean that's you should you should right. just so i mean it'll, it it'll run fine on regular yeah but you know if you put in and and this is the case with uh most of these turbocharged engines you know is they'll you know they're they're generally you know unless they're in a you know a very high performance trim level uh or you know a high, a high performance vehicle they'll generally run fine on regular gas um you know they'll they'll just retard the spark and things like that and yeah. make some adjustments in the the fuel mixture but um you won't get the full power output and then you know they'll you know they'll run maybe a little more boost a little more advanced spark and get you you know a little more power uh if you put in the good stuff yeah. So engine aside, um, the signature trim is like, it's pretty nice. And the thing about the oh, Mazda yeah. 6 and the thing about, I guess, all Mazdas lately the, is they, they sort of seem to have picked up um, the kind of, uh, I don't want to say image, but just sort of like the kind of personality that older BMWs used to have, you know, the, the E36 and E46, where they're a straightforward car. You know, the inside, the ergonomics are very clean. Um, you, you can you can get them 
you know, with some luxury, like the, the signature has leather in a bunch of places and Alcantara and, you know, it's a nice car too. Um, but it just like they, I they mean, seem, and it's gorgeous from the outside. I mean, yeah. the design of this thing is just fabulous. You know, they seem to do that thing that, you know, car enthusiasts like in a sports sedan. Cause I consider the six a sports sedan or at least a sporty sedan. So does it live up to that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the driving dynamics are, are fantastic. You know, it's for, a, you know, a, a good size, midsize front wheel drive sedan. It's really well balanced, you know, and I noticed this when I drove it on the track, um, you know, it, you know, like any, you know, car of this type, you know, it will ultimately understeer, but, you know, up to nine and a half tenths, you know, it's, it's really well balanced. And one of the things that they've incorporated in here this year for, you know, as they refreshed, it was their, uh, their G fact, their G vectoring system, which is effectively kind of an automatic trail braking system. Uh, you know, so what it does is, you know, as, as the, uh, sensors detect that you're turning into a corner, you know, it will automatically back off. It can, autom- it can automatically back off on the torque a little bit. If it detects that you're starting to understeer, it'll, it can reduce the engine torque a little bit, uh, just enough to give you a little bit of weight transfer onto the front wheels to help the wheel the front tires bite down a little bit better. So basically, you know, what, you know, uh, what a good driver would do, you know, if you don't do it yourself, you know, trailing off the brakes a little bit as you go in, as you enter the corner and head towards the apex, you know, it'll do that for you uh, so that you get a little more balanced cornering attitude. And then, you know, as you accelerate out, you know, it, <clears throat> it gives you back your full power again. So, uh, you know, it does, it does that really, I mean, it's very imperceptible, but you can, you can feel how neutrally balanced it is when you drive it hard through corners. So it, it it works really well. Um, and you know, it's, it's a roomy car. Uh, you know, as you said, you know, it Honda or uh, sorry, not Honda Mazda (laughs) in the last few years, you know, has started to shift towards a little bit more of a, um, trying to create a little more premium perception around the brand. And, you know, when you sit in the six, you know, especially the, you know, the signature or uh, the grand touring reserve uh, trims, you know, actually any of the trims, you know, it's got a very clean design. It's not cluttered with a lot of excess stuff. Uh, It's very well laid out. Uh, You know, Mazda was one of the earlier mainstream brands to put, the the screen up on top of the dash, you know, standing up so it's up near your line of sight. Uh, but Mazda is unique in the you know among mainstream brands in being the only one that uses uh, a central rotary controller, you know, similar to a BMW iDrive type of system rather than a touchscreen layout. So you know their their default UI for their infotainment system is okay. It's fine. It, it works reasonably well. Um, you know, but you control it through a rotary knob, which I like. I much prefer that to having a touchscreen. You know, I can I can get around that a lot quicker than I can with a touchscreen without you know, with spending less um, less paying less attention to the screen. You know, because I don't have to reach out and and touch you know hit the touch targets manually yeah. um you know so i uh, you know oh, this is this is absolutely one of my favorite uh mid-sized sedans to drive and you know just in general you know one of my favorite cars to drive well i mean it's yes mine mine as well i mean it's it's a lovely car especially i haven't had a signature trim i mean it looks like it's it's quite luxurious in terms of just you know how it's been 
upgraded. I, you know, I, I liked even the, the grand touring or the touring trimmer, you know, even, even lower than that. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's, yeah, they're all great. Yeah. It's overall, it's a good car. And I, I, uh, I'm assuming Maz is struggling a little bit in the market just because sedans are struggling anyway, and they're a much smaller automaker anyway. So, I mean, I hope it doesn't go away. Is <laughs> I guess what I'm getting at. You know, we need more. You cars. mean the brand or the car? The car. Uh, we need more yeah. cars like this. I mean, you know, because the, the six is also, you know, like if they they offer the the CX nine, which is also really good, and the CX five, which has been redesigned to be a lot like the six, just as a crossover. But I think there's something about the the sports sedan or a sedan that an enthusiast can love. And that comes with some of that refined luxury that um, isn't the exclusive uh, domain of the Germans yet. Uh, you know, it, it, Mazda hasn't ceded that over to the, the German brands quite yet. You know, it's it, you can get that same kind of thing in a car that, you know, comes from a different place. So it doesn't do some of the, the Germanic stuff, which is is nice. It's a, I think it's a lot more friendly to operate than a three series. Um at this point and the three series isn't bad and it's it's actually just been redone so i can't wait to try yeah. that out but well and and based on what we've heard from casey on more than one occasion uh you know it, the the mazda is likely to also be a lot more reliable yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's that's true um you know so I, because we focus on tech a bit um how was all that stuff to to operate? I mean, you talked about the the control knob and stuff, and and I found their UI is is pretty good. There are some times where you wish it actually had both a touch touch screen and the knob, depending on what you're trying to do, because the, the knob can sometimes get on a multi step process. It can be a little cumbersome, but it, you know each each different input scheme is only going to be ideal for so much you know so yeah well one one of the one of the additions this year for you know as part of the refresh for 2018 is they added apple carplay and android auto support for the first time so the the six is the first mazda to get that get support for smartphone projection in the vehicle um so now you know when you have your phone plugged in uh, you can you know especially if you're with android you know the uh, google uh, voice control works really well and so you can use that to, you know, pull up, uh, you know, to enter navigation destinations. You can also use it uh, to, you know, to control whatever media you want to play. So if you if there's a podcast you want to listen to, you know, you can just say, you know, listen to wheel bearings in pocket casts. Right. And you it'll should pull say it right that. up. It, <laughs> yeah, should, exactly. <laughs> or or, you know, you could also do, you know, listen to wheel bearings in Spotify uh, because we're, you know, our podcast is on Spotify now. Um, or, you know, if if you happen to be, um, you know, using some other uh, podcast player, you can do that as well. So it. You know, it works. Uh, you know, all, all of that stuff works really well. Um, it's it's a pretty robust system. Um, you know, and even even with the control knob, you can also um, get around the interface pretty quickly. Um, and I think you know, probably quicker and more reliably than you even can with a touchscreen. Yeah, and it, honestly, for the price too, it's it's a lot of car for the money. It's um, I think the signature starts at just under thirty five. Uh, did you have any options and stuff on the the sticker, or is it there? There aren't really right. much in the way of options on the uh, the signature, you know. So mine came to you know, including destination charge, it came to about thirty six thousand um, dollars, and you know that's pretty much you know with everything that you can get on it. That's that's a lot of car for the money. I mean, it's not it's not that it's an insubstantial amount of cash, but 
you know, you, yeah, but I mean, you can you can get a you know get the base um, Mazda six Sport, you know, starting at twenty three, um, and you know if you want to go for a touring or, or grand touring trim, you know, you can get those in the upper twenties, and you're still you know you're going to get most of what you're going to get in this car, um, you know, for you know a, a very reasonable price. So how did the the six speed auto work with the new engine? Because the auto the the, the automatic is kind of it's not a spring chicken that that transmission has been around for a while um you know and it's a six speed where a lot of other automakers are going to like seven eight nine ten even um speeds so a six speed feels a little quaint these days but if it works it works um did it feel well matched to the engine and, and uh you know did it play along if you wanted to try to hustle it yeah, I mean, you know, one of the advantages to having lots of torque is, you know, that it, it can fill in for gaps, you know, where you may have fewer ratios, you know, and, and you know, because it's, it's a turbo direct injected engine, you know, it's got a very wide flat torque curve, you know, so... And from a drivability standpoint, you don't really notice how many gears are there. Yeah. You know, they they may be giving up, you know, a little bit in terms of optimal uh, fuel efficiency. But, you know, other than that, you know, from a drivability standpoint, you don't you don't notice it at all. It's it, it you know, it's great. Um, you know, and when you it's the, the signature has paddle shifters on the, the steering wheel, as as most of the, the higher end trims of any of these cars do, uh, you know, so you can shift you know, shift it manually that way if you're so inclined, um, you know, and I, I've done, I did that on the track, you know, on the street, you don't really need to, you know, you're better off just dry, leave it in automatic mode. Uh, but you, you know, you, if you put it in sport mode, you know, that tightens everything up a little bit, shifts, shift points are a little bit higher, throttle response is a little bit better. Um, but, you know, other than that, yeah, I, I couldn't really complain about the uh, the transmission at all. Yeah, it sounds like the 6 is just a car that we should remember to recommend to everyone. It's one of those things that a lot of times as auto writers, right, we get we can we'll get in trouble if we recommend the cars we actually like to people. We we need to find out what they actually, you know, what they want and then make sure we're giving them a solid what they want or what they need. Well, both. Because but, those aren't necessarily the same thing. But you know what I mean? You know, somebody will ask you like, well, "What what's a car that you would buy?" and you say, "No." You don't want the car that I would buy. What do you What do you want to do? Do you want to get to work reliably? Yeah. Uh, and that's that's the question. I mean, that that you know, I, I, I assume it's the same with you. You know, whenever somebody asks me, you know, what uh, what they should buy, you know, I I usually start peppering them with questions right. first to try to understand what it is that their what their needs and and wants are. You know, which more often than not these days ends up being some sort of compact to midsize crossover, but. You know, that's just the reality of it. But I, you know, I always do try to get people to consider cars like this, you know, or the, the three as well, you know, as another great option if they, you know, if they're after something a little bit smaller, uh, you know, yeah. and my, you know, the, the only, the only thing that is that I find unfortunate about the Mazda six is that we can't get the wagon here in the U S because oh, the wagon Americans is so nice. just won't buy wagons. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's, I mean, I love the way the six sedan looks, but the wagon is even better. Yeah. That's, and the utility you get out of it is just phenomenal. That's true. That's a shame. And they could make the wagon with the manual and it would be just great. I guess we just have to move somewhere else. <laughs> yep. Um, you can get them in Europe. Yeah, of course. So what about you, Dan? What have you been driving? Yeah, I had a couple of things because of the way my week has has gone. So I was in the Pacific Northwest for the first uh, couple of days of the, the past week, and I managed to weasel my way into a Hyundai Kona 
which is fantastic. It's the longest time I've spent with the Kona so far was these couple of days. And I've, I just really, really, really like that car. It's unique. It's easy to drive. It, it rides and handles with discipline. It's comfortable, even though it's kind of small. Um, I, I think the, the biggest piece of feedback that I've seen from other auto riders is, is that they like the Elantra GT better, but I don't think that those two are the same thing. No, not, not really, not really. You know, the, the Elantra is a little bit bigger, you know, a little roomier, um, you know, and it's, it's definitely targeted to somebody that wants a car, you know, it, you know, it's got a lower H point, um, you know, and you, you know, within the hot, within the Hyundai lineup, you've got this gradation, you know, uh, in the, the sportier, vehicles uh smaller sporty vehicles going from the the veloster you know as the the most low slung version and then you've got the elantra gt that's you know a little little bit higher up you know a lot of similarity mechanically um you know but it sits up just a little bit taller and then you step up again into the kona uh you know to, to go another step up you know get a little bit higher hit point um and obviously a little higher center of gravity as well um and and obviously a very different kind of look to it what do you think of the design of the kona i love it uh, and it's funny because it continues some of that look with the parking lights and and um just running lamps up above that the the Jeep uh, Cherokee started a few years ago and has since abandoned. Um, but it, it's really successful here. I think it looks really good. And yeah, uh, well, actually, I mean, that kind of that look really started with the Nissan Juke. That's that's true. The Juke was a little weird, but I also love the Juke. <laughs> it was a lot I, weird. I like that automakers are willing to try things, even if they're not ultimately 100 percent successful. I think this goes back to our discussion of design uh, last week was either way, if. 50% of the people hate it and 50% of the people love it. At least they know what it is, you know? Um, and I, I really, I like the way the the back end of the Kona looks too. It reminds me of some of the, the just the hatchbacks that I loved from the early eighties with just that multi color light panel. It's a, I know it's kind of a very, that's a very <laughs> in the weeds sort of thing to be talking about, but it's, it's just, it's a, it's a well-designed car. I think it really pulls off its look. It, it has, the ability to look rugged and sporty at the same time, which I think is what people want. They don't want to necessarily use any of the ruggedness, but they want want it to to look like it's there. You know, so some of the the plastic, you know, the bare plastic um, exterior trim and stuff helps helps it out there. Uh, and inside, it's just it's really really comfortable in the in the front seat. You know, it's I thought it might be tight because it's small, but it's, it's not, you know, and there's good cargo area. The back seat is, is a decent size. You know, that's, I think where the size starts to come into play is, is the back seat, you know, the leg room um, and, and cargo space as well. But, you know, for, for people who want like a, not even a runabout, but just an everyday car, that's a little different that has the all wheel drive. This has also had the 1.6 liter turbo, which is, feels plenty strong. I, I really like that engine and, and it worked really well with its, uh, you know, the rest of the drivetrain. Um, they have a great package here. I don't think that it's really got too many competitors across other brands. You know, I was thinking of the focus active, which we're not going to get that might be sort of the closest kind of analog to it. Um, maybe, you know, of some other competitors. Yeah, I think, you know, probably something like the, uh, 
Yeah, I'd almost say the Toyota CHR, uh, except the CHR is not available with all wheel drive uh, or a turbo for that matter. Not Um, in this market. I think they do make it. Right. So they could. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Overseas they do, but not uh, not here in the U.S. Um, I'm trying to think what else. See, but I I think there's there's not really much. Probably the you know, maybe the closest thing to this would be like the the Jeep Renegade and the Fiat 500X, you know, because they have the 1.4 liter turbo. Yeah, I could. So the Renegade to me is is too much like the 500X is, is really friendly, too. I like that vehicle a lot. Um, the uh, the CHR, you know, having spent time in the CHR, I, I would also I would pick the Kona above the CHR. Just it's it's a little. It's easier to see out of it. I think it's just a little bit more pleasant. So, you know, it's got a better infotainment system and um, Hyundai is, is, you know, we continue to shower them with praise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, they're they're executing really well on the stuff they yeah. do. And, you know, it it's going to be I, I drove the Kona, you know, during a media drive uh, here in Detroit uh, back in June. Uh, so I've driven, you know, brief, you know, for a couple hours, I've driven the uh, the Kona and I'll have another one uh, later on. But um, I'm actually when I head out to uh, California tomorrow, I'll be driving the new uh, Kona EV, uh, which, you know, Hyundai's already got an EV in their lineup with the Ionic, but uh, that one's only got 124 miles of range. The Kona is going to have a bigger 64 kilowatt hour battery. So more than double the size of the one, the Ionic, and it's already got its EPA rating at 258 miles of combined range. That's awesome. It, <laughs> yeah, so it's you know it's going to be it's going to be interesting to to drive that one uh, and see how it compares to the turbo, you know because you know they're they're entering you know now now they're the you know the Ionic hasn't been a huge seller uh, for Hyundai you know in part because I think uh, you know they at, when they started the planning on that you know they were they were looking at you know something that was going to be really more of a direct competitor to the um, to the Prius, but, uh, you know, but between the time they launched that program and the time it got to production, you know, the market really shifted very rapidly towards crossovers and away from cars. And so now bringing the Ionic EV to market, you know, they're going to, you know, hit one of the hottest segments in the, in the industry, you know, with these small crossovers with a long range EV. And we don't know what the pricing is going to be yet, but uh, it's going to, you know, it'll give customers a lot of interesting options with this car, you know, so they can go with a, a lower cost, more basic one with the, uh, I think it's with the, the two liter uh, naturally aspirated engine. You can get the 1.6 liter turbo or an electric version of this thing. Yeah, and so the other little bit of feedback that I saw from fellow auto journalists was that the fuel economy of the 1.6 turbo uh, wasn't as good as they expected. And I didn't have any complaints. It was solidly in the 30s. And with what I was doing anyway, uh, I didn't really have any any idea. I mean, it was in a strange place. I was a stranger in a strange land. And I wasn't driving to really actually check fuel economy so my results aren't really applicable here but it was it was solidly in the 30s for what we did and and i didn't think that that was out of bounds uh but with an ev in the lineup too you can say well if you want more more efficiency like get the electric one it's gonna give you you know that's that's a week plus of driving uh for the average commute i I know you know the average commute is only an average but still like that 258 miles of range is a lot 
Uh, oh yeah, I mean that's that's more than um, more than a Chevy Bolt, um, and you know only the uh, only the Teslas have a longer range, and they're probably going to be a lot more expensive. Yeah, so if they can bring a Kona EV in under forty, um, and in the, some of that's going to be the under forty before the tax uh, incentives, which I don't know how many. You know how long Hyundai has left with that? Uh, Hyundai's got lots of time. They haven't sold that many plugins yet, so yeah. I think they're they're currently still uh, well under fifty thousand. I think they're maybe only about thirty thousand plugin sales so far. So you know they'll have they'll probably have at least a couple more years before they run out of uh, tax credits. So if they can make the car under forty before the tax credits apply, and the tax credits can bring it down, you know, somewhere near. Th- 30 or in the high 20s. I mean, that's that's the promise that everybody's waiting for with the Tesla Model 3. And if you can do it with the Kona, you know, like uh, it, it starts to starts to actually fulfill that that thing that everybody's looking for. Right. That an EV dream of an affordable, small EV that's you know put together well and uh, you can go to your local corner dealership and get. Um, that, that's that's there's a lot of upside there. As, as long as long as you live in one of the uh, the Zev states, because that's yeah. the only place where they're going to be available. So it, it won't the at least for now the Kona EV will apparently not be a fifty state vehicle. It'll only be available in California and the other states that mandate manufacturers to sell a certain number of plugins. Yeah. Um, but you know, yeah. really, you know, that's where most of the customers are anyway. Um, you know, most even you know if you look at uh, GM or, or Nissan um, with the Leaf, you know, they're not selling many EVs in those markets outside of those uh, states anyway. So it probably won't make all that much difference. Yeah, yeah. I, I continue to be impressed with the Kona. I want to try it for a longer stretch. Um, and in the meantime, too, when I got back from my trip, I got into a new car that feels very old. It's <laughs> um, the uh, the Toyota Sienna uh, XLE all wheel drive. Nice van, looks really nice on the outside. Inside though, you swing that door open, and you're like, holy crap! <laughs> this thing has not been updated in a very long time inside, and it shows. You know the the dash and plastics and materials. Just this, you know, XLE is their top trim, or maybe there's limited. I forget, but. It's this is not a base model vehicle, and it just feels so cheap. It feels very much like 2008 in here, um, which that's exaggerating a little bit. But um, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. It's the Sienna feels to me like it's it'll be the next one due as Toyota goes through their all of their cars because um, it yeah as a van it feels behind the curve. Yeah, well, I mean, both the Chrysler Pacifica and the Honda Odyssey, you know, have gotten redesigns in the last couple of years, uh, so they're they're fairly fresh. Um, you know, the the next oldest one in, in the segment is the uh, the Kia. Um, well, I can't starts, the name. starts with an S, right? Doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, Sedona, Sedona. Uh, the Sedona, yeah. You know, and you know, even that one, you're right, feel does feel more modern. You know, and I think it it is newer than the than the Sienna is at this point. Um, you know, the, and the the Sienna is you know obviously built you know on an old off of an older uh, Toyota platform. So, but on the other hand, you know, one thing about the the Sienna that you were driving that is unique in the segment. Is all wheel drive. That's it's, true. It's yeah. now it's now the only minivan available with all wheel drive. 
And that's a plus here in New England where we do get winter. And that's one of the reasons why a lot of folks have chosen crossovers is because they offer that all wheel drive. You know, that's one of the key defining features of a crossover. Uh, not so much in vans, although the vans always, always make more sense if you're going to use it as a family vehicle. You know, this thing has two big doors on the side and they open with, you know, they power themselves open. It has a giant uh, hatch on the back and a huge well uh, for cargo um, or the seats fold flat. Um, at least the, the third row. I don't know if the second row seats do. Um, and, you, you know, know, if you're strapping young kids into booster seats or child seats, it's so much easier to do oh, in yeah. a minivan than it is in, a, in an SUV or a crossover. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's comfortable. It rides and handles pretty well. I know it's an old platform, but it, it, it's fine on the road. You can you, you can make it work on a back road and it's, you know, yeah, you, you can find the limits, but it's pretty good. And the 3.5 liter V6 that Toyota makes is a freaking rocket. You know, it's got plenty of power. Uh, so all of those things Toyota does very well. The I, I, and so it's mostly like you look at the dashboard and you're like, seriously, this I I swear this car has not been updated since 2010 or 2011 in some basic level. You know, this, the leather seats are nice and comfortable and it has um, high current USB ports sprinkled all about. So functionally, it's very good. Uh, it's just now it needs to have that that refresher of, of nicer materials and the uh, infotainment system is pretty bad. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, it's, that's, that's going to still be running an older version, you know, like the original version of Entune probably. It, uh, yeah. It, it feels very, very dated and it's crappy to use and the display is ugly. And I, I that also needs updating very soon. <laughs> All right. Uh, before we continue on, I'm hearing some rustling there. Are you wearing a lav oh, mic or something? Yeah, it might be. Yeah. There, is that better? It's probably yeah. better. Okay. I mean, I'm I'm assuming it's probably, well, I don't know. I mean, if you're recording that, that might be a problem. No, I'm not recording. But, okay. Yeah. So uh, it's probably not a problem, but I just, just wanted to make sure you were aware of it. Uh, That's okay. So continuing on, uh, let's get into some of the news of the week. And, um, First up, uh, you know, I think uh, Monday night I got a call alerting me to, uh, or maybe it was two, maybe it was Tuesday night. Got a call alerting me to uh, some news that would be coming up on Wednesday morning from GM, and uh, turns out they made a made a big announcement of a tie up with Honda for their autonomous vehicle program, um, and uh, you know kind of brings together one of the the leaders in the space with one of the frankly one of the laggards in the automated driving space. Um, Toyota uh, has you know has not been particularly aggressive in rolling out automated driving technology. They're working on it. Uh, you know they've been doing a lot of development work, but they you know in terms of you know when they were planning to. Uh, commercialize it they were they were not really in any rush to do that um, you know up until a couple of years ago they were really not planning to do much with automated driving until the late part of the 2020s and then two years ago their ceo announced that no we're going to pull that up to 2025 and now it looks like it's probably going to be sometime in the early 20s you know maybe in the 21 22 time frame um, with this deal with with gm uh, what they're doing is uh, they're joining SoftBank and making an equity investment in GM Cruise LLC, which is the 
the subsidiary that GM established, you know, that that holds, you know, that owns actually owns cruise automation. Um, and now uh, with SoftBank having bought a uh, up to a 20 percent stake a couple of months ago, uh, Honda is taking a 5 percent stake for seven hundred and fifty million dollars. And they're going to be working with GM to develop some purpose built automated vehicles. So what does Honda get out of this? deal though uh you know it's not really like they're buying into gm proper no uh so what you know they get access to the automated driving technology that cruise and gm have been developing um uh, which you know basically you know gets them you know up to the front of the pack uh or you know pretty much close to the front of the pack in terms of the technology i'd still say that waymo is probably overall got the the most mature automated driving technology at this point, but uh, GM and Cruise are not far behind. Uh, they're they're right there as well. Um, you know they've got a, a very robust system that's based on a you know a, a strong hardware platform and and some good software uh, from the Cruise team. And um, you know to start you know when GM GM is still says they're planning to launch their commercial automated ride hailing service in San Francisco next year. And, you know, that's going to be using an automated version of the bolt. Um, but, you know, the thing about, you know, we've talked about this in the past, you know, with these um, as, as they deploy automated mobility services, the companies doing this stuff really need to um, maximize the utilization of these vehicles. They need to get them out there, you know, doing stuff that makes money as much of the day as possible. And, you know, while the Bolt is a, is a great platform, you know, for the ride hailing part of this, you know, because it's, it, you know, it's, it's a small footprint, but it's a fairly tall vehicle. So it's pretty easy to get in and out of uh, for passengers, but, you know, because of its layout, it's not really very well suited to anything else except carrying passengers. So, you know, it's it's not going to be a great package delivery vehicle or, or light cargo vehicle. And, you know, what you know, what everybody needs in this space is they need vehicles that are designed for these kind of transportation as a service applications, you know, and that are flexible enough to do a bunch of different things. You know, like Toyota showed off their e-pallet concept at CES this year. Um, Ford is developing something like this, you know, for 2021. That's going to be a purpose-built vehicle that can do do these different kinds of tasks. And now GM and Honda are going to work together to do a purpose-built vehicle, which will probably, you know, the so they'll for the first couple of years GM will be using the Bolt, and then after that they'll probably transition transition over to this new vehicle that they're developing with Honda. And you know, because Honda is great at doing packaging for small vehicles, you know, taking small right. footprint vehicles and getting the most out of them. Um, you know, they, you know, they can bring that expertise to the table to, as they work with GM um, and they'll get access to GM's uh, automated driving technology. Well, and the, other, the thing, other thing, Oh, go oh, ahead. Go I think you're probably going to say the same thing that I was. Um, well, you, you go first. I was just going to say the, it not not necessarily going to be pure EV either. You know, Honda brings to the the plate um, its fuel cell uh, technology that's running around uh, right now in the Clarity. Right, that they, they could use that for this uh, new vehicle as well if they feel like it it makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, um, you know, 
part of the reason why this deal came together is because GM and Honda are already working together um, on both fuel cell and battery technology. So, you know, they have a joint development program for next generation fuel cells and also a joint venture that is going to manufacture fuel cells uh, here in Michigan at a plant just south of Detroit starting in 2020. Uh, so they're they're actually going to be making fuel cells, uh, the fuel cell systems here in the U.S. And uh, that's at a plant that's about 40 miles away from the, the bolt plant, um, which may well end up being at least one of the manufacturing locations for this purpose built vehicle. And I wouldn't be surprised if this vehicle that they developed together is available um probably in both configurations, both as a battery electric and as a fuel cell vehicle, you know, and can be deployed with either one, depending on where they're, where they're deploying it. Cause these are going to be geofenced vehicles. They're going to, they're only going to be operating in service and fleet services, you know, in specific areas. So depending on where they are, where, you know, whatever, whatever uh, powertrain makes the most sense in a given location, they could go either way. So I wouldn't be surprised if there is a fuel cell version of this. The other thing I was going to uh, mention is, you know, again, because these are going to be deployed through service applications and they're using, you know, a service, a service platform that Cruise is developing, um, you know, part of, you know, what GM has talked about in the past is, you know, in order to start, you know, to try to make money on this, they want to scale it up as quickly as they can. And that means deploying it to as many locations as they can. Well, GM's got a big presence here in the U.S. They've got a presence in China. Those are their two biggest markets. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of other places where GM doesn't have as much of a presence, particularly in Japan, um, mm -hmm. also in Europe now. And, you know, Honda, you know, has a significant presence in both of those. Honda's yeah, Honda not the biggest player in, in Europe, but, but certainly in Japan. Um, well, they, so, do, they do well in Europe though, right? I mean, yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. Okay. I mean, you know, they're, you know, they're not, they're, they're not doing, they're not as huge as, you know, say Toyota or Nissan uh, among the Japanese uh, brands in, in Europe, but they're doing okay. Uh, but at least they have a, a presence there, which is something that GM no longer has. So, um, you know, between the two of them, they can cover more ground, uh, you know, with deploying these vehicles, deploying the services in those regions. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I guess the markets too. Like, you're going to wind up needing to to make sure these things get out there. Like, you know, like you said, get out there real fast. And so, the markets that might be most receptive to this are not necessarily the U.S. I think China really tends to adopt technology faster than the U.S. does. But certainly, Japan likes to be on the cutting edge too. It always seems to me that the U.S. is, you know two to seven years behind what's going on uh, in other parts of the globe. Yeah. I mean, you know, we will, you know, we'll have some of the, the first deployments here in the U S just because most of the technology is being developed here. But in terms of where it's really going to start to scale up, we probably won't be the first market where it really starts to get big. That's probably going to be China. Uh, but you know, Europe is also Europe and Japan are also potentially very strong markets for this technology because of uh, particularly in Europe, you know, you've got the um, congested cities and you've got the emphasis on uh, reducing the number of vehicles in cities and reducing emissions. So, you know, the focus on zero emission vehicles in Europe uh, and also trying to get fewer vehicles on the roads in city centers, uh, you know, in, in a lot of big European cities. Um, 
will probably make them more amenable to you know to sw- to having people switch away from driving their own vehicles to uh, using these automated mobility services. Well, but that's the the tough part here too, right? Is what are these vehicles actually going to look like and be? Are they gonna, how big is it going to be? Is it going to be still a, a single person uh, or a single rider per trip? Or are, is it going to operate more like a, you know, like a bus or like a carpool? Um, all of those things really play a big role in how many cars are actually adding to the road versus how many wind up getting removed. If we just switch every car that's currently on the road for an EV, we haven't really solved anything. Right. And, you know, so, uh, for this first vehicle, you know, it's most likely going to be something in like the four to six passenger range, you know, uh, some sort of electric shuttle vehicle, an urban shuttle vehicle. Um, you know, and I, I, you know, based on what we've heard from GM and from Honda, you know, it will probably be a relatively small footprint vehicle. So it's not going to be a huge vehicle, um, you know, which will make it more suitable for both for European and Chinese roads. Um, and because it's going to be in a shared mobility service, you know, the idea is that, um, you know, each one of these will will be um, utilized more, um, you know, and can potentially replace multiple individually owned vehicles you know so if if people adopt these kinds of shared mobility services and get rid of their own cars you know this you know each one of these could replace potentially you know six to ten individually owned cars um and because they're you know in operation most of the day you know they're not sitting around idle um you don't need as much parking space for them uh you know today you know here in the u.s we have seven parking spaces for every car in the United States. Uh, And, you know, a lot of urban centers, you know, as much as 25% of the landmass in, in city centers is dedicated to parking for for cars that are just sitting there doing nothing, which is insane. Yeah. That also exacerbates stuff like heat Island effect and and Mm -hmm. things like that. We got just like a big hunk of blacktop absorbing, (laughs) absorbing, you know, solar rays all day. Right. So, you know, if we can if we can get people to shift over to shared mobility in in city centers, you know, you can potentially have fewer fewer vehicles moving more people and they don't have to use parking spaces, you know, because their fleets, you know, the um, the only time they would really need to be parked is, you know, when they're getting fueled or charged up or, you know, getting cleaned uh, or, you know, having service. And, you know, we could have those service depots, you know, around the perimeter of the urban centers instead of right in the middle of it. So there's the potential to reduce the need for parking in urban centers um, if they're, you know, if if the transition does actually happen. It just sounds like there's a lot of very optimistic ifs with all. Yeah, of oh, this. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, there, there's there's a lot of unknowns with this stuff. You know, uh, you know, if if, if people are going to adopt it, you know, the pricing has to be right. Uh, but, you know, that that's you know, that's something that could, you know, could be a significant advantage for these vehicles, because when you look at, you know, the cost of ownership of a vehicle in an urban area, you know, if you look at you know New York, for example, you know, it can cost you, you know, a thousand dollars a month or more just to park your car if oh, you yeah, own a car bonkers. in Manhattan. Yeah. Uh, you know, and that's before you make a car payment or put a drop of gas or pay for insurance. Right. Uh, so, you know, if you think about, you know, what's it going to cost me per mile, you know, to use these ride sharing services, these autonomous ride sharing services, you know, it could 
be it could make a lot more sense economically for people that live in cities or that commute into cities than than driving their own vehicles. Well, see, in like and, New York, I, I don't know that New York's the, the greatest example because New York tends to have somewhat robust um, public transit. But there's there's a lot of other cities. I think that these would really work a lot better in that don't have quite as much public transit, even like L.A., you know, like L.A. is a lot bigger. Yeah, well, L.A. LA and, and San Francisco and you know Phoenix are, you know, are prime candidates. And Miami is another one. Yeah. You know, a lot of the, the big southern cities are going to be the prime candidates here in the U.S. Uh, for early adoption of this stuff. But then also, you know, in, in Europe and in China as well. Yeah. Oh, well, good. Southern cities, they get more sun. They can use more solar. Yay. <laughs> what can uh, go wrong? Yeah, no, I mean, it seems like it seems like something to to keep an eye on. I'll be very curious to see what their actual plan is to to make it attractive for people to use use the service um, and, and how that that works and whether they work with local governments or some other way to to, again, you know, try to incentivize people. Because given our druthers, it seems like we'd rather just sit in our four thousand pound box of metal in a traffic jam. But alone. Yeah, I, I know. And, you know, and that that's, you know, and again, this is potentially why, you know, we'll probably see more uh, faster adoption in other parts of the world than here in the U.S. Because uh, you're more likely to, particularly in China, you know, because of the nature of the, the government there, there's more likely to be um, mandates that say, you know, OK, you can't drive your individual vehicles into these areas of the city anymore. You know, they will just say that's, you know, you're going to use these shared services going forward. Um, and, you know, similarly in Europe, you know, it's more likely that you will have, you know, and, and various parts of the world. You know, there's a lot of cities that have adopted uh, congestion charges like in oh, yeah. London. Like Lon yeah, right. London's been very successful with that. Right. So, you know, instead of paying 25 pounds a day to uh, drive into the center of London, you know, what that could transition to in, in five or 10 years is they'll just say, OK, you leave your you know, if you're driving into London from outside, you park your car at this perimeter and you take one of these automated shared vehicles to get you to your final destination um, or to feed you into the uh, into the mass transit system, into the, the, the tube or or the buses, you know, for first mile, last mile services. So, you know, that's that's more likely outside of the U.S. than it is here. You know, here you just you're you're probably not. At least in the the near term, you're probably not going to see local governments making those kinds of uh, mandates uh, on the way people commute. For now, for now, I mean, yeah. it makes a lot of sense. I would love to to have that option um, to be able to do transit and then solve that last mile problem too. So, uh, good for them. I mean, I think that they they can only do better by being together. Um, you know, without every automaker doing their own thing, we'll get closer to. Yeah, well, and that's, you know, that's that's the other part of this is that, you know, developing these automated systems is enormously expensive and takes a lot of resources. Uh, and, you know, a lot of I think a, we're going to see more of these kinds of partnerships going forward where, you know, instead of every company developing their own system, we're going to see these collaborations. You know, we had Toyota and Uber make an announcement a couple of weeks ago. Um, you know, we've got. 
company, you know, companies like uh, BMW and Intel and FCA working together. So there's there's going to be more and more of these partnerships um, as the companies that are struggling with the the technology or just you know don't have the the resources to do it will partner up with the companies that are having some success with it. Because ultimately, they want to stay in business. <laughs> That's and, the hope. Right. Um, <laughs> is, all right. You know, so, what else have we? What else we got topic wise? Um, I see a couple uh, of things. What do, what do we want to jump to next? Let's see. How about uh, Mercedes killing off some niche models? Oh yeah, uh, um, that that seemed really interesting to me. That they've now decided that after twenty years of expanding the model range, they might have too many vehicles. Uh, I mean, just look at what they've got in crossovers and SUVs. Uh, there's a lot of different flavors and. Uh, I think what is it? They they have close to forty models now. Yeah, something something like that. You know, it, the the trend we've seen, you know, like you said, over the last couple of decades has been trying to fill every single white space in the in the lineup. You know, with something. Uh, you know, and it started with you know so BMW in particular has been you know very aggressive with this. You know, they started you know with uh, vehicles like the X6. You know, adapted from the X5 with a sort of a coupe like uh, body style. You know, then adding you know the X4 uh, and the X2 and and yeah. you know various grand coupes and and right and uh, three series and five series GTs right and, and then uh, Mercedes is following along the same lineup. Uh, you know, copying every one of those. Um, Audi's doing similar things. You know, and as as the market is shifting, you know, and especially as they're now everybody's starting to roll out electric vehicles. You know, they're they're finding that they're ending up with even more models. Uh, right, and and that's a problem. Well, it, so it was a dedicated strategy to fill every possible niche uh, back. Even 10 years ago, when BMW and Mercedes really, really got going with this. Um, and I, you know, I'm not sure how successful it's been. Uh, it, there had to be, I forget exactly what the reasoning behind it was, because what they've really done is they've leveraged their expertise with, you know, platforms and making different models, but with the same stuff. Uh, and they've managed to become pretty good at that i hope and efficient at it uh and now there's just like there's so much choice it's almost like i just remember a time when there was like two mercedes models you get the e-class or the s-class <laughs> that was oh, and there was all there was also the sl right okay sure um now we've just you know so three models we've gone from that to like 30 something uh, yeah, I mean, now, you know, in, in the 80s, they added the C class. Uh, and then in the 90s, they added the A and the B class. You know, they kept going smaller and smaller. They've got, you know, the the the, the my box on the top end of the lineup. You've got all the SUVs. You know, you've got traditional, you know, two you know wagon style SUVs and coupe style SUVs, you know, at every mo at every size. It's it's just crazy. And it and when you add the when you add the you know the what they're having to spend on developing automated driving and electrification and services and everything else um you know at some point you know you've you just got to start saying okay you know we can't we've got to we've got to get rid of some of these models that just the volumes just don't justify their existence well that and i think that 
Mercedes is is a lot like uh, well, I mean, it's certainly it's a lot like BMW in that sense too. They're known for particular things. You know that the E Class wagon is a, a particular kind of car that you it, it's an icon and it it does what it does in a way that no other car does. And so maybe they retreat to their core, you know, the the cars that they're famous for, right? Um, although I think that the SL might be one of the ones that gets trimmed if we're talking about stuff that just sells really slowly. Uh, just, you know, that's an expensive car. It's a convertible. I can't imagine that it, it sells that much, um, but it's also kind of a flagship. So it's, it's kind of the same as what we're seeing Ford do, right? Like they, they can't be afraid to just cut the losses before they wind up really taking the company down. And I, I think that things are precarious enough that, if you don't get out in front of it, if you don't make those proactive changes, you wind up with this this just drag on your organization that you, you can't get away from if the economy turns down or, or something. So I think that everybody's a little skittish and this might be Mercedes just trying to make sure they don't make a wrong choice. Yeah, absolutely. Um you know, and the, now's now's the time to do it before it's too late. So, you know, I think as you know, and, and several of these niche models are already, you know, approaching the end of their current life cycle. And, and you know, instead of, you know, redesigning a new one, you know, if you're going to if you're going to cut it, cut it now. Well, yeah, I mean, it's not just the, the fact that you've got a new model that may or may not sell better than the last model. It's all of the cost that goes into developing it. Right. So you save that cost and you put it elsewhere. Right. And especially, you know, since in the markets that are growing, like particularly China, um, you know, those models don't don't even sell don't sell particularly well there. Anyway, there's not a whole lot of interest in in convertibles over there. So, you know, if you're not going to get some some growth, you know, enough growth to even maintain the sales level you had, um, then it's you know, it doesn't make sense to keep going. Yeah. You know, I keep. I apologize to anybody who's listening in China. I keep coming at things from a very North American perspective because it happens to be where we are. But I really think that China is going to the, the the wants and needs and tastes of the Chinese market is going to drive, especially the premium automakers actions over the next 10 years. And it already has too, because those are the ones that they really need that more than, than any other n- area of the market right like those that that's the economy that's going to continue to make to have the growth and to to buy those those cars and and they want different stuff than we necessarily do here in the in the states and and i think that if mercedes bmw and even you know like even the higher end brands like rolls royce for instance if they can match their offerings to that chinese market they're going to do well they're going to be set up for the future versus i think always holding the north american market and our volume above everything else yep all right so <laughs> let's finish up with one one last topic for uh for this week yeah kind of and, a downer uh, yeah well you know it is uh but you know i last night uh i went to uh awake uh here in town uh, for the late tony swan who uh who died last week after a decade-long battle with cancer um tony tony was one of those writers you know he was he was 78 and he was one of those writers that when I first got into cars you know i, I got interested in cars when i was i don't know about 11 or 12 and 
uh, you know, I started reading, reading road and track and car and driver and motor trend, uh, back in those days, automobile didn't even exist yet at that point. Uh, and you know, Writers like Tony and uh, uh, Dennis Simonetis and Gene Jennings um, and, you know, David E. Davis and, and many others were the ones that, you know, over the years, you know, they were the ones that inspired my interest in cars and in engineering and, you know, getting into the auto industry. And, you know, it's because of people like Tony that, you know, I've had the career that I've had over the past 30 years. And, you know, particularly over the last decade, the last 12 years since I started writing about cars, I've 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 consider I've I've consider myself to be incredibly fortunate to have gotten to know a lot of these people that whose work I've read for so many years um, and, you know, become friends with some with a lot of these people. And, uh, you know, it's it's been a it's been a real honor for me. And, you know. Over the last couple of years in particular, you know, as Tony's, you know, got into remission and then, you know, resurgence of the, the cancer, you know, he's gotten particularly frail. And, but even despite that, you know, he he ran his he throughout his career. You know, he was always an avid racer, you know, won multiple SCCA regional championships. Uh, you know, he worked at many different publications over the years and, um, you know, he he kept going right up until the very end, you know, up until just a few weeks ago, you know, he was, he was still working. And he, in fact, he ran his last race in mid July, uh, back in May when he and I drove together to, uh, to Wisconsin for the mama spring rally. Um, you know, he was, he was saying at that time that, you know, this was probably going to be his last year of racing. And, you know, he, he kept racing right up until the middle of the summer before he finally, uh, had to hang up his helmet. Yeah, I can't remember a time when I didn't see his byline somewhere. In, and I'm sure that throughout his career, his byline existed <laughs> for the entire yeah. time I've been alive. Um, but I mean, he's yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, he was he was he was writing, you know, he was a professional journalist for longer than I've been alive. You know, yeah. And I'm 52. So, um, yeah, it was, you know, his wife, Mary, uh um, hosted a, a wake at, uh, at their house, uh, last night. And, you know, it was a lot of people showed up and, you know, reminisced. It was a, it was a good time, you know, talking about their memories of Tony and, um, you know, uh, Mary put out, uh, all the, you know, all kinds of photographs and, uh, his, his, you know, some of the, the stuff that he's collected over the years all around the house and the messages that came in from everybody that knew Tony over the, the last few weeks. And, uh, it was, you know, it was a great way to say goodbye to Tony. Yeah. This is a, this is a small industry. I think, um, maybe not everybody understands that, uh, and it's especially smaller now, but, um, even back in the day, and and he certainly came from a time when, um, the the magazines had a a larger amount of of sway with automakers. You know, they they hung more on every word that was printed in Car and Driver or Road and Track, or uh, you know, now they those automakers feel like they might have other places to get their message out, so they're not quite as um, I don't know, quite as concerned about what, what enthusiast <laughs> press has to say, but, uh, you know, he came from those days of, of just, uh, 
this important institution. And I think that, that those days and those guys are why I wanted to get into to, uh, to automotive journalism and, and, you know, being on the other side of it, working in it, it's a really small group of people. And we all at least know of each other, if not know each other directly. And, and uh, you know, when, when something like this happens, you wind up seeing people from, from rival publications or whatever. It's, it's just, it's a, it's a, it's like a Knights at the round table kind of thing, you know? Yeah. I mean, you know, if you add up everybody, you know, at least here in the U S you know, all, all the people that do this stuff uh, here, you know, you're not, it's not more than a, a couple of hundred people. And a lot of them are located, you know, here in the Detroit area. And, you know, it's, you know, we, we end up going to a lot of the same places, you know, traveling around together, you know, driving the same cars and, um, you know, going to the same events and we see each other on a pretty, pretty regular basis. And it's, it's a surprisingly close knit community of people. And it's a really great group of people that, uh, I've, I've considered myself very fortunate to have become friends with many of these people over the last 12 years. And, uh, you know, to, as I said, you know, to have grown up reading the work of a lot of these people and, you know, it inspired me to do what I've done over my adult lifespan. Um, you know, and hopefully, you know, hopefully maybe, you know, a little bit of what we do, you know, will inspire some others to, to do something similar in the, in the coming decades. Maybe. I'm not sure that the, uh, <laughs> autonomous, uh, mobility provider reviews are going to be quite the same. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's why we do other stuff too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I only hope that I can pass along my, uh, my crusty demeanor to somebody else. <laughs> Oh, I'm sure somebody, somebody just as crusty as you will come along. I'm sure. I'm sure. And when I recognize, I'm going to realize my days are numbered. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, it's always a bummer to lose someone from the, from the community. So, um, yeah. I hope that, you know, now that, uh, now that he's found peace, uh, we can just, we can appreciate his legacy. Yep. And then uh, one last thing uh, for for this week is uh, we did have an email from uh, from Chuck Goolsby. Uh, ah, Chuck. And, uh, yeah. So <laughs> he writes, Chuck writes, uh, speaking from experience, E-types are not at all scary to drive. In fact, they were light years ahead in terms of ride and handling compared to other cars of the era. Fully independent suspension, race bread handling, geometry setup, four wheel disc brakes and an excellent steering rack. Today, with six-inch wheels and modern electrics, uh, must be 16-inch wheels, and modern electrics, uh, mine, uh, mine has a Hitachi alternator, a facet, uh, solid-state aircraft fuel pump, and a modern optical-triggered ignition. It's damn reliable as well. You're both welcome to come take mine for a spin, for a spin anytime, and it's likely the only car that will fit Dan better than anything <laughs> else ever built. At 5'11", I'm actually too big for the car. Uh, I mean, I'd, I'd love to drive an, an E-Type. Um, I don't think I've actually ever driven one. I, I certainly... I, I, I have not. I appreciate the engineering um, that went into... I'm trying to remember when we said that an E-Type might have been scary. Uh, I think it was when we were talking about the uh, the electric E-Type when uh, Jaguar announced a few weeks back that they oh. were going to uh, uh, produce a run of the or or they, they would be um, doing customer uh, electric E-Type conversions. OK, yeah, I mean, that's that's a lovely car. Um, they're so pretty. Uh, but yeah, I, I can see how they're not 
they're not scary in a driver's sense, maybe. And, and Jaguar had that, what, that ride and handling thing that they did so well for so many years. And they, they still kind of do. Um, I think yeah. maybe where the where the scary part comes in is, you know, when you look at modern cars and you look at the E-Type, when, especially when you see one in person and you realize oh, how, how, how small and how delicate. Yeah it looks and feels, um, you know, certainly, you know, if, if somebody were ever to hit you while you were driving an E-Type, um, you know, with a modern vehicle, your chances of survival are probably pretty slim. Yeah. But at um, least you were doing something you loved. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I, so yeah. I, you know, I, I think, you know, compared to say a nine eleven of the same vintage, you know, it was probably, it was certainly wouldn't have been as scary to drive. No, um, it's, but, it's bigger. To, but, like it, that, but it has that. Yeah. The, the, I'm trying to think like, so the E-Type ran with Corvettes back in the day, right? It was, it was the same kind of, not necessarily. Certainly, certainly with the, like the main, you know, in terms of performance, it would have run with like the mainstream Corvettes, um, yeah. you know, not, you know, it couldn't accelerate like a big block or anything like that. Uh, but then again, it could, it could easily outhandle those cars and it actually probably could have easily, you know, on a, on a road course, it would probably run away from a Corvette of that, of that era. Yeah. Um, but you know, the drag strip, the Corvette would be all over it. Yeah. But it's like a big block Corvette is sounds, sounds good on paper. But yeah. holy crap, you want to talk about a car that's scary. Well, any, with all that any, any car, any car with a big block V8 in it, you know, is much better, much better idea on paper than than in reality. Yeah. Um, yeah. I so Chuck, next next time, uh, I, I think he's out in Seattle. So I should have called him. He, yeah, he's somewhere in the somewhere in Washington. So yeah. next time you're out there, definitely look him up. Um, and it, he actually, his message uh, continues on um, talking about the E85, 86 uh, BMW Z4, um, which we also mentioned a few weeks back. Uh, it wasn't a, a, um, a bangle design. It was an Anders Warming design. It was Anders Warming that penned it. Uh, and Chuck bought a 2007 Z4M Roadster in 2012 is a midlife crisis sold my company moment and he loves it. I bet I never sell it. It's basically a modern E-type, big horsepower, naturally aspirated straight six, insane handling, lightweight, minimal Roadster, no nav, no digital gigas, just pure driving enjoyment. I also think the design is aged very well. It looks unique and purposeful and nobody has anybody else, nothing else quite like it on the road with so many vehicles looking like jelly beans or pickups on steroids. The E85 looks like a spaceship. The M version is truly the last great analog BMW, especially as they put as they've finally ironed out the uh, issues with the S54 engine, which was the the last of the big naturally aspirated uh, um, inline sixes that BMW did. Uh, wonderful car. You're all you're also welcome to come drive it too. Uh, and actually, um, one of my neighbors around the corner has uh, not an M, but has a, that, a first generation Z4, and it. He's Chuck's right. It it has the design has aged well. I think, you know, I think a lot of people didn't really like it when it was new, but um, it's it's held up very well, and it you know it looks better to my eye now than it did you know 15 years ago when it first came out. Yeah, I think there's a lot of BMWs from that era that do that same thing. That sort of slow burn of we didn't like it, but now that we're used to it and it's gone. <laughs> We like it much better, which like that's. I still don't like the the original Bangle Seven series, but um, but a lot sure. of the other cars that followed it were were much better. Yeah, and, and I guess I I just defaulted to citing Bangle because uh, I remember talking about Chris Bangle. Um, 
because he was the design director, so everything sort of had to. Yeah, he was. In, yeah, he was in charge. He had to sign off on everything before it went through. But yeah, I I mean I love the coupe version of that too. Um, I think that's such a great classic coupe. When she was talking about the E eighty six, just the proportions of it are just phenomenal. Um, so yeah, well, Chuck, if you ever come to New England, you can drive a Crown Vic. <laughs> <laughs> And likewise for you, Sam. If you I'm, want to drive a Crown Vic, you just you know what. Yeah, no, it's, it's all right. I've been there, done that. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, I think that's a podcast. So uh, yeah. until next time, uh, you can find us. Uh, we are on social media uh, at Wheelbearings Cast on Twitter with no vowels except for the A in Cast. Uh, we have a Facebook page, which is Wheelbearing Media, um, and we have uh, an email, which is uh, Wheelbearings Podcast at Gmail dot com. I believe. Um, uh, it's just wheel bearings cast. No, oh, wheel bearings cast. See, I screwed that. Up. Uh, and yeah. yeah, and you know, I'm at Boston Auto, and you are at Sam Abul Samid. So, I think that covers all the bases. Let us know what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong, and uh, we'll see everyone next week. All right, talk to you soon. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.